Today, scripture is John chapter 4, um, 1 through 19. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Let's pray. God, we're just um, so thankful for this community and God for um, providing for us in in a multitude of ways. We thank you that um, even when uh, Andrew is not able to join us. Um, there are so many in our midst that have skills and uh, talents to bring the word to us. We thank you that um, we're not reliant upon one man, but we're reliant upon you, Jesus, and you have provided um, all the means, God, um, to uh, continue to bring the scripture to us. We thank you for um, Tracy and just his uh, willingness to come and speak to us this morning. We thank you um, God, again, for the gifts that you've given him and um, our community, and we just ask that you would just um, open our hearts this morning as we listen to your word. Amen. an honor we are to fill the pulpit this morning for Andrew. I even got my real radio microphone on here for a preacher, and that'll go well, we hope. And uh, thank you, everyone, who's been a part of uh, making this day happen for us this morning. I realize that um, last week, Ed preached on the same chapter. Uh, he was in verses 20 through 24, if I remember correctly. So hopefully this will just sort of buttress what he has already said. He did a great job, by the way. And uh, may God add his blessing this morning to the reading of the word, and thank all of you for coming out. Um, so before we begin and dive into the first part of John chapter 4 here, I also feel the need to go to the Lord in prayer. 
Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to be here this morning. Would you be with all of us who are here? Father, may your spirit work mightily among us. Father, to bring the truth here and uh, your words and not mine, Father, and thoughts that come from you. We do want to pray for the decanters that are still in South Africa. We pray that their trip continues to be successful and we can welcome them back home here at, uh, soon, Father, according to your will. Thank you most of all for your son, Jesus Christ, in his name we pray. Amen. So this morning we're going to talk about wisdom from the well. And a well-known story to all of you Bible students out there who love the word. One of my favorites, actually. There's just a lot going on here in this chapter. Uh, you know, we read through it rather quickly. And yet there's so much here that with the interaction between the, the Lady of Samaria and uh, Jesus at the well here, and what all that means and digging into all that is probably more than we'll be able to mine out here in our time together this morning. We'd just like to bring it to your attention and have you think about it and see what we can glean um, from the, these past, this passage. We may extend a little bit through verse 19. I hope you weren't worried about us getting clear through the chapter. It's very long. Uh, we're not going to go that far going to hold our remarks probably to verse 19 or so and maybe jump out towards a couple of the other ones uh, towards the end. So there is obviously wisdom at the well. And this lady who came there that day, she saw what she really saw was just a tired, thirsty Jew. And at that point, he was nothing more than that to her. Um, she may have been quite surprised to see him. Now, the, the word tells us here it was the sixth hour, which we can read part of that again if we need to which would indicate to us it was about noon. And um, normally that chore would have been done very early in the morning. Uh, so she, if you will, has sort of sneaked out there to the well at noon, hoping maybe that a lot of people wouldn't notice her because if we are given to understand that her background was not good, she was probably not a very moral person. And therefore she needed to go at that time so she wouldn't be confronted by people who may not appreciate her for whatever reason. So she sort of sneaks out there at noon and she winds up seeing this tired, thirsty Jewish person, man. And again, at this point, that's all she was to him, was just that. Um, you know, it's hard for us to imagine how you can just look at someone and tell where they're from. Uh, but they have a little bit of that ability. It's just like uh, when we go to Uganda. Mary and I have a ministry in Uganda. We've been to Uganda several times since 2004, uh, maybe 15 or 16 or so times. And we've missed a couple of years. COVID kept us back for a while. But we have a little ministry in Kabali, Uganda, with a local church called King's Resurrection Center. So we know a little bit about Africa. We've never been to South Africa, but we've been to East Africa several times. We also have a little coffee growing in Rwanda with a friend of ours there. So we're, we're, we're uh, familiar with the idea that people can look at another person from another tribe or another area and can identify them. Usually we have difficulty doing that, and I guess that's not a bad thing, but they're, they're good at doing that there. So a uh, little bit of background. I've uh, been in the ministry since 1985 uh, in two or three different churches, and now it's primarily in Uganda. Uh, occasionally something will happen here. I do have a monthly Bible study at the Vine House in Modesto that we take care of. And other than that, we're just waiting for whatever the Lord might bring along. And usually he's pretty good at doing, doing that. So let's just read here a little bit again. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees 
had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. I'd like for you to notice as you read through the Gospel of John, there are different times, and there's several of them in this chapter, where he sort of calls us aside and whispers in our ear. Sometimes just kind of in brackets, and sometimes just not. He does that for us here when he says, he makes that comment, it's bracketed here, that Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. That's John pulling us aside and saying, this is the deal. Jesus didn't do that much baptizing, but his disciples did. And the Greek would give us to understand that it really wasn't his custom. It's not that he never did, but it wasn't something that he did regularly. So there was apparently some tension going on, maybe between John the Baptist's disciples and Jesus' disciples. And he decided that it was time for him to skip up to Galilee, which for him was probably a real blessing. Uh, I can't imagine the pressure that he must have been under in, down in the Judea and Jerusalem from the powers that be there. Going back to Galilee was kind of like going back home for him, or it was like going back home for him. So he enjoyed the opportunity, I think, in my own biblical imagination, that this was a, a sort of bit of a reprieve. He could go up there and be with the common folk up there and get out under some of the religious pressure and struggles he may have been going through down there in uh, Judea and Jerusalem. Verse 4 tells us he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to Joseph. Uh, In 2016, Mary and I had the opportunity of taking this little trip from Jerusalem to Samaria we were on a tour there with some other folks, with Michael Carr, the singer-songwriter, and a busload of us went, and they all went home, and Mary and I got to stay for three more days. And we hired our driver, the bus driver, to take us around a little bit. So he took us from Jerusalem to what is now called Nablus. It's the same town. A sidecar in the Old Testament is called Shechem. So it's... Uh, Years ago, Nablus was quite famous for being in the news, a lot of tension with the Palestinian thing there, and not so much anymore. But we had to pass through Ramallah, which is very close to Jerusalem, and that's where the center of that, all that activity, that's the seat of the PA now, I believe, is in Ramallah. Nevertheless, it's about a 30-mile trip from Jerusalem to Sychar, to Shechem, to Nablus, all the same place. Seemed like it was longer than that and we were going, but that's what they tell me it is, about 30 miles. So Jesus is walking along with the disciples, uh, and I'm not sure how long it would take them to walk 30 miles, but it probably took them a couple, three, four days maybe. So they get up there, and quite naturally, Jesus is thirsty. The disciples are gone to town, the Word tells us, and here comes this lady uh, to get a drink. Also, it might be interesting to notice that he is passing through Samaria when the general thought of most folks is, why is he doing that? You know, she says here later the Jews have, or John actually tells us, the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. There was tension between the people. And most of them, or a lot of them, would pass, then go right around, which is a long way. If you pass Samaria and go up to, to Galilee, it's a long way. You're adding a lot of time to your trip. But Jesus and his disciples didn't do that. They went right through Samaria. And some folks have thought, well, maybe Jesus just has a special connection with them or had extra compassion on the Samaritans, and that's why he was going through Samaria. But we find from history, if you read in Josephus particularly, 
that it was not unusual for the Galilean Jews to go ahead and go through Samaria. They routinely went through Samaria. The ones who didn't or the ones who refused to go through were the Judean or the Jerusalem Jews. And they were um, not, not going to do that. They had a real issue. More of an issue with the Samaritans and the Galilean Jews did. And, and just in general, it's kind of known also that the Galilean Jews were a little more lax in their practice than the Judean Jews. And that's one of the issues they had with Jesus and the Galileans is they were kind of like, to use a phrase, they were sort of like upcountry Jews. They were not as into the whole nitty gritty as the ones who were in Jerusalem and Judea. Personally, I think that's why Jesus was sort of anxious to go home, to get out from some of that pressure and some of that nitpicky things that they did down there in Jerusalem and Judea. If you've ever been to Israel, maybe you've noticed uh, on the Sabbath day, which is Saturday, every Saturday, obviously, things are different. And they, just the way they, they do things. For instance, if you're in a hotel... And if you get in the, el- in the elevator and you want to go up to the 6th floor, 8th floor, or come down, whatever, you can't push the buttons because that's work. On Saturday, the elevators stop at every floor because they don't want you to go out and push the button. And that's how extreme it has been and can be down there. Another little tidbit was we were at the, at the hotel at dinner one night, and one of us, I believe, was Mary, wanted some cream for her coffee. And we're in the dining room where the meal is served. Well, the Galilean Jews were known to eat meat and milk at the same time. And the Judean Jews would never do that. And they would never do such a thing. So we had to have a gentleman from another room <laughs> where the lounge area was, so to speak, to bring her trying to sneak her a little, little cream and pour in her coffee because they don't mix meat and milk. So that's, that's the society that he was living in. And that's just a just little tidbit of the things that are going on there. And nevertheless, suffice it to say that the Galilean Jews were not that strict or not that demanding in their observant of what all they had to do as being an observant Jew. So the Galilean Jews had the, I'm sorry, the uh, Judean and Jerusalem Jews had a little difficulty with them. And even in later times, they tell me that they would not le- allow the Galilean Jews uh, to read the scriptures and to pray in the synagogues. So that's why he's going through Samaria. So uh, it says there now, he came to the city and uh, verse six, Jacob's well was there. Therefore, Jesus being weary from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour, or noon. A woman of Samaria came, and he said, quite naturally, give me a drink, which is not a bad thing. I mean, that's a pretty, pretty common request. And there it is. That's the well, Jacob's well. It's still there. It's underneath a Greek Orthodox church. It seems like the Greek Orthodox and the Catholic church have built something, a shrine or a church or something, over every site that you want to go see. There's either a Catholic or a Greek Orthodox building over it or a shrine of something. It's no different here. This particular well sits at the bottom of a huge Greek Orthodox church in Nablus. And that area is real close there. Nablus lies in the valley between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. 
And it's right in the middle. It's where a lot of history happened for Israel. Um, and history's about to happen again when Jesus has this interaction with the woman at the well. So you can go see it. If you ever get over there, it's still there. And of all of the sites that there are in Jerusalem, and, and sorry, in Israel to go see the Holy Land that we call it, of all of them, this one is, they're pretty sure that it's exactly the right spot. Some of them are kind of iffy. You know, you're not always sure. They're not even sure exactly where Jesus was crucified. And all those things are sort of speculation. It might depend on who you're with as to which site you'll go to. But nevertheless, they're pretty confident that this is, in fact, the well, Jacob's well. Um, I was fortunate enough to get a drink from it that day. And it was quite, quite inspiring. And the whole trip over there was just amazing. Um, so we got to see that and be there and talk to the probably 80-plus-year-old um, Greek Orthodox priest who was standing there. We had a picture of him, but that didn't make it up on the slide, unfortunately. But trust me, it was a lot of fun. Uh, short guy, big black drobes and a whole bit. It was just really fun. And he took us down uh, to see the well, actual well. So it's still there. So Jesus says, give me a drink. Very common, not an unusual thing to ask from her. He was hot, he was tired, and he needed a drink. Disciples had gone to town. The woman said to him, then in verse 9, how is it that you being a Jew ask a drink of me, a Samaritan woman? And then John tells us in our ear, towards the end of the verse, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So he's filling us in on the details as we go through. Jesus answered and said, if you knew who the gift of God and who it was that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. He would have given you living water. So we're not, so that's still, you know, they're still in the very beginning of the uh, encounter here with this. And she's, uh, you know, she's, kind of wondering why this gentleman from that's uh, a Jew is uh, trying to get a drink from her, a Samaritan woman, because in her view, uh, they had no dealings with the Jews. And then John fills us in that that was the truth. However, as we said earlier, Jesus was not bothered by all that. He was there. He was passing through on his way home to Galilee. And um, he asked her for a drink. And then he tells her if he'd known who he was, she would have asked him for this living water. Now, living water may have been a bit of a stumbling stone for her because the Samaritans, if you know anything about, which I don't really accept what I've read in, in, in times past, they, they only accepted the Torah. The Samaritans' view of Scripture was the Torah only, which is the first five books of the Bible. And there's no mention of living water in any of those. You have to get into the prophets before you start hearing about living water. So that may have been something she was tripped off as what's this living water stuff all about. So then she begins to push back a little in verse 11. Um, she, was, you know, she was not really going to be into this thing very much here at the first. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this, that living water? So she pushes back a little, which is probably not too unusual for her, being a woman from her background, for her lifestyle. She's probably used to pushing back on men. And this is no different. That's all he was to her. Remember at the first we said that all he was to her at first was a thirsty, tired Jew. So for her to, to give a little pushback is not unusual. We should not be surprised that she did that. And another thing to, talk, to know about the Samaritans and the Jews is that uh, the Jewish people wouldn't even have considered 
the ones from the Jerusalem particularly taking a drink from a Samaritan's bucket. That's, that was just unclean. They had to believe some of the Pharisees, the, um, the leaders, that all of the Samaritan women, regardless, were defiled from birth. That was the review of them. Unfortunately, but that's the way it was at that time. So, you know, for a little background, why is there just such a conflict between the Samaritans and the Jews, some of them? And it goes clear back to 1720 or 21, when the northern kingdom was conquered. Uh, the people who conquered them, they resettled foreigners in that land. They were basically Assyrians. Well, they came in and they married the rest of the Jews who were still there. And so there was a, there, they were intermixed. They were a mixed blood people. And therefore, the Judean Jews and the Pharisees and all those powers that be down there, they would not accept them because of their mixed blood. And they hated them. They viewed them as squatters. And they should not be there. So that's the reason for all of the hatred between them. But we see Jesus didn't have that issue. He was willing to go and be with them and pass through. And no doubt he did it more than just this one time that we have recorded for us here. So she's pushing back a little bit. You don't have a bucket. What are you asking me for? You know, you're a Jew. Are you? Then she, gets, then she kind of ratchets it down a little more in verse 12. And she says, are you greater than our father Jacob? Notice that she ties herself, her lineage to Jacob. And that was true. She, she was not, you know, out on a limb here. She did have roots back to Jacob and Joseph, who the, this land was given to Joseph by Jacob. And that's where all this happens. There's a lot of history there. Like I said a moment ago, and then when the Jews came back into the land from their captivity in, in Egypt, they came into Shechem. And you can read where, um, I think it was Joshua, read through the law with them. And all that happened right here in Shechem or Sychar, what's now Nobilis, the same place. Very historic in their history. So she was correct in claiming that she was an ancestor of Jacob. And then Jesus, you notice now, (laughs) he doesn't take the bait, does he? I mean, here's, she's sort of out there pushing back a little, asking some religious type questions and what have you. And he doesn't, he doesn't go down that path with her at all. He simply says in verse 13, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. And we know that that's true. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be well becoming it a well-becoming in him, a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So that's the truth. We know that's true. Many of us here have accepted him and know that to be true. He's with us each and every day. And we might talk more about that here in a moment. So then she says, uh, you know, through this whole section here, beginning with about verse 11 on through here for a little while, she keeps on Occasionally she pushes back. Occasionally she kicks a little what we like to call religious sand in his face. If she brings up things from history, she's you know, pushing back. Well, what about this? What about that? You don't have a bucket. Why are you asking me? You're a Jew. She's kind of pushing back on him with some of the religious stuff here. And then she says in verse 15, Sir, uh, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. So we begin to see, beginning in about 15 or so and following, there's sort of a subtle, maybe not so subtle shift in her attitude. 
she begins to, you know, be a little more accommodating, a little more inquisitive. She starts asking some questions. She, so we notice a shift in her attitude beginning with about verse uh, 15 or so and on down through there. She wanted that water so she wouldn't have to come back there and draw. See, she's still thinking about natural water. And what he is offering her is the well that wells up in her to everlasting life, a concept that she hadn't grasped yet. We think she will hear her before very long. In verse 15, the woman said to him, well, we read that. Um, in 16, he says, go call your husband and come here. In other words, go get your husband and come back. And here we start seeing her begin to open up a little, began to interact with him a little, a little more than just trying to, you know, push back and cause a religious division that's already existing that she was trying to tap into. And notice with me again that he would not go there. He did not engage her in that type of discussion because that's not what he was for. That wasn't what he was about. And she is learning that slowly. And sometimes we learn things slowly, don't we? At least I do. Anyway, he says to go get your husband and bring him, bring him here. She answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. That you have spoken truly. So that's, that's just truth. She knew it. He knows it. It's out in the open. It's no big deal. I mean, it is a big deal, but at least they're talking about it. She's had five husbands, he tells her. He knew that, no doubt, because he's the Lord. He knows everything. And when the Pharisees, if I remember correctly, they said that three was a limit. So three husbands apparently were okay, but if you had five, then that's not okay. And so she was in sort of a bad way. She had, this was her fifth husband. For you have no husband, and the one you, whom you have now is not your husband. And that you said, we read that. So she, he's agreeing with her that that was right. Notice with me, though, if you will, that he doesn't condemn her. He really doesn't say, aha, I gotcha, you know, or that I've won this little debate here. No, he, he reaches out to her lovingly in compassion. And that's what we want to see. In, in, in spite of all that pushback, in spite of all that religious sand, in spite of all of those issues that were between their two people groups, Jesus did not engage. He simply put out the truth for her. And as we see here in a bit, she, uh, she begins to open up and say yes to it. Um, beginning with verse 19, which is the last one we had read. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Amen. Amen. We can say amen to that. She, indeed, she was right. He was a prophet. Not only was he a prophet, he was a living son of God who is alive with us today. I mean, all these centuries later, he's still giving living water if we'll just but tap into it. So, so she says, I perceive that you're a prophet. And then she goes on and starts talking about what Ed covered last week. He won't spend much time there. But it's important to realize the impact of those four verses that he talked about last time, last Sunday. I don't know if we could, I don't think it's possible for us to overemphasize what Jesus said in those verses Particularly when he tells her that, you know what, the day is coming and now is when you're not going to worship the Lord in this mountain. No doubt he passed him Mount Gerizim. He was right there. Or in Jerusalem. 
But in our own words, a true worshipers will worship him in spirit and in truth. I might not have it exactly, but that's the context of it. And for him to say that, for Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, who everyone down there recognized was at least a prophet, they may not have known him as Messiah, you know, they called him rabbi, they called him different things, but for Jesus, the very Son of God, to tell them that you don't need to worship in Jerusalem, can you imagine? I mean, that was like their entire life. Everything centered around the temple in Jerusalem, everything. And if you got tossed out of it, then you were done. I mean, it was like not a good deal, right? You might be able to come back into the court of the Gentiles. But for him to say that, I think in our Western mind, in our far down the ages now mentality, it's hard for us to imagine the impact of what that meant. You're not going to worship in, in, on Mount Gerizim. You don't need to worship in Jerusalem. You worship in spirit and in truth. And we can say Hallelujah. Hallelujah to that. We don't have to go to some particular place. So Jesus is really involved here with about three big major points uh, that we need to, to, we need to focus on. The very fact that he was willing to go to Samaria and to walk through there on a regular basis and converse with the people, to me, he, that's signifying to us that he delegitimizes racism in all forms. He was not a racist. He was not going to participate in that human emotion or in that human thought where our tribe is better than your tribe or any of that. He wasn't tribal. He delegitimized all of that racial stuff that was going on there and forever for those of us who are his children. Should not be a part of our Christian experience. I don't believe it is. Occasionally we, uh, you know, we may have some slips, not maybe in that area, but in some others. But thankfully, uh, the Lord is our keeper. He keeps our thoughts and our minds uh, when those temptations may come along. So he delegitimizes that. He also supports women in a very particular way here with a Samaritan woman who, who the Pharisees, the, the leaders in Jerusalem thought that if you were a born Samaritan woman, you were defiled from birth. That was their attitude of you. You couldn't drink from their cup. You couldn't have them serve you. You couldn't use their bucket to gather water. So this lady was blown away by the fact that he was willing to do all of that uh, for her and with her. And um, so he, he took care of all that and, and those two things. And, yeah, and, and, and there, there's the three you know, supporting women. Unfortunately, in their time and in their culture, women were not valued as they are today. And that's a shame, uh, but it's true. So he just knocked all three of those things, if you will, figuratively out of the water. He just brought an end to all of that. And yet, how many years ago was that? And we still have vestiges of that among us today. And that's why it's important for those of you who know and worship Christ and not let that be a part of your life or my life. Remember what Christ did here in John chapter 4. He knocked all of that, to use a common term, out of the park. Knocked it out of the water. It is no more in his view and it should be in our view. So he, he, he reaffirms all that, sets it into motion that these things no longer matter. That was then, this is now, and with this, with this new water, this new well that's coming for her, 
he is reaching out to her in love and compassion. So through this, through this whole discussion, it's apparent to me, and I hope it is to you, that Jesus was driving at something much deeper than just water and just the fact that he was asking her for a drink and the fact that he was there as a Jewish person. He was driving at some deeper-seated needs that she had. This woman was wounded. He could tell by her, the way he respond, she responded to him, that she was a wounded woman. She had many issues deep-seated. And he was offering her the, the living water to get her out of that. But she was wounded, she was bruised, and she was broken, if not, at least emotionally, if not physically. That's who she was. And obviously, Christ being Christ, he knew that. And the whole thing about the husband you know, came up to clear that up. And uh, he was no doubt feeling pretty uh, full of compassion for her because the man that she now had wasn't, didn't love her enough to make her, her his husband, if that could have even happened. But she had, um, she had the same basic spiritual needs, and Jesus saw that as all the rest of us, every one of us. And those three spiritual needs, if no one has ever enumerated them for you, are simply these. It's love, acceptance, and security. And we all need those three things. God made us. I think Ed may have quoted last week Pascal's famous quote. There is a God-shaped vacuum in every one of us. Every person that's ever come along has this God-shaped vacuum in their heart and soul. God's brilliant, right? I mean, he's like, there's nobody, no entity, anything, anywhere close to the intelligence of God, our creator and our God, Father. Not only did he give those three needs to us spiritually when he built us, created us, he also did another thing that's very, very important that we should pay attention to. He engineered it so there's only one thing that will meet all three of those needs. And we call him Jesus Christ. He's the only one, the only thing you can try and people do, you can see it around you. Try any number of things to fill those three needs. And it usually winds up in some sort of disaster. Not to mention the fact they're never satisfied because they're always, they're always on a quest for one of those three things or all three of them. But when we come to Jesus at the well of wisdom, uh, it's there for us. Amen? All we need to do is reach out and accept it. And I know there are times when we get away from it. And we know this life is full of challenges. Adoption being one of them, no doubt. And God knows that. He, he, meet, he made us. He knows all the things we're going to pass through. Jesus himself, you know, had to deal with some of those issues. And yet he never strayed. He knew who his father was. He knew where he was going. And he just walked in that truth. And that's our desire for all of us, is that we would allow the Lord to be the, all of those three things for us and many more. Just, that's just the beginning at this well of wisdom. So there are two more points I'd like to make here before I take my seat. And very simply, they are this. We skip over to verse 29, 28, excuse me. I think we've safely bypassed Brother Ed's sermon, and it's, as well as it was just a great, I really appreciate his worship, the points he had on worship, and it was really good. I really appreciated it. But in verse 28, John says, the woman left her water pot and sent her away into the city 
uh, and said to the men, come and see a man who told me all things that ever I did. Could this be the Christ? Well, yeah, it was. But the point being here that she left, I I want you to think about it for a moment. This is significant to me in a number of ways, very symbolic. She left her water pot. The very thing she came to the well for was to fill that water pot. When she has this interaction with Christ, begins to hear and and listen to him and begin accepting, we believe, what he was offering her, all of a sudden, the water pot meant nothing to her. She left it. That's very symbolic. Because in that, we see symbolically, and I know you can't go too far with types and what have you, but there is a great ministry if you can start thinking things together with that. The water pot, in my mind, symbolized her former life. Everything that she had ever done it was you know, connected to that in some way or other. She had to have that water. She needed to go at the wrong time of the day to get it because of her life condition. And she was so overcome by what she's hearing from the Lord, all of a sudden that no longer matters to her. She left it. So that's our opportunity. We have the opportunity to leave the old and to leave it in the dust, so to speak, and to move into the new life that we can have in Christ through faith in him. The other thing I'd like to leave us with this morning is that the well is still there. The well, my friends, is still there. If you need a trip to the well this morning, it's still there. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never had the experience of unburdening yourself from all of that past stuff in your life and receiving Christ as your Savior. Well, the good news is the well is still there. And the one who sat by it is still there too. Remember, he was just a tired, thirsty Jew when she first met him. She walked away beginning to realize and probably, I think, believing that this was, in fact, the Messiah. She asked the men, could this be the Christ? Their Samaritan name for him was Tahib. Could this be that one? And then you know the rest of the story. She went back into town. They came out. He stayed with them two more days. So we can take it from that, that these people were engaged. They were accepting and wanting what she, he was offering them. And they were leaving behind the old life. Symbolized for us so nicely by the water pot. She left it. She turned away. And we happen to believe that um, there's nothing that, that we can't really do that with. Just come bring it to him. Let him take care of it. Clean it up. Clean it out. Get rid of it, whatever it is, and move on. And then like the song says, um, one of my favorites, says that we can't imagine the freedom we find from the things we leave behind. Amen. Can't imagine the freedom that we find by the things we leave behind when we come to know him as our water of life, as the fountain that springs up into us for everlasting life. So it's our prayer for all of you this morning, even if you've been a Christian for many years, that you would continue to go back, continue to remember uh, that the well is still there and the water is still flowing and it's ours to access freely each and every day. May God bless you. Thanks.